This is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to episode five of Transitional Matters. Today, I'm joined by Sam Brothwell, Energy uh, Income Partners, and uh, we're going to be talking about the energy transition and everything really about energy, I guess, uh, and what's going on in this space. Now, my good friend Greg Guerin was the one that actually put me in contact with Sam, so I thought it would be quite nice just to get Greg on this as well to kind of co-host and throw questions at Sam as well. So... uh, before we, before we get into all this, Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for uh, spending some time with us and, and sharing your knowledge and information. As I said, before we jump straight in, can I get you just to explain to the audience kind of your background and a bit about you? Because because you have had a very varied career. You've kind of, I'm going to use the word, come full circle from being an analyst uh, all the way through to actually working in an energy firm. And now you actually are a fund manager as well. So can, can I get you just to paint a bit of a picture around that? Certainly. Uh, well, first of all, Chris, thank you for inviting me on. I'm, I'm really pleased to be uh, joining you this afternoon. You're right. I, I have worked in many different areas of energy. Without getting too detailed, I began my career with an electric and gas utility in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I did a number of jobs there, but I wound up in investor relations. And that put me in touch with a lot of folks on, on Wall Street, both in the credit and equity markets. And um, I made that transition in the late 1990s, became uh, an analyst. I spent a number of years with Merrill Lynch and then with what's now known as Wells Fargo Capital Markets. And you pointed out uh, that I went back into the industry in 2009. Uh, was not a particularly great time to be on Wall Street. And I had the opportunity to join a company not too far from where I'm seated today in Park City, Utah, which was Questar Corporation, which was the gas utility serving the greater Salt Lake City area here in, in Utah. And I joined to run investor relations, but I really got mostly involved with a corporate restructuring that spun out there upstream oil and gas exploration and production business, uh, uh, an operation that I didn't really think, as a, from an in, wearing an investor's hat, I didn't think fit with a, a gas utility, which is something that people invest in for a dividend and, you know, relatively uh, stable earnings. And that does not describe the exploration and production business. So we spun that out in, uh, in uh, 2010. And um, I found my way back to the uh, east coast of the U.S. when I joined Energy Income Partners. And I can, if, if you'd like, I'll give you a, a brief overview of the firm that I'm with now. And what yeah, we yeah, do. Please, please do. Please do. Yeah. So Energy Income Partners, or EIP as we call it, was founded in um, 2003 by a gentleman named uh, Jim Murchie. And uh, I've known Jim and the, co- the two co- co-founders, Eva Powell and Linda Longville, who's now been, who has now retired. I've known them pretty much since they started the firm. I was working as an analyst at that time and found that our views were aligned in terms of investing in 
non-cyclical energy infrastructure. So poles and wires and pipes and tanks, utilities, pipelines. And the reason that we invest there is that that's where you find um, you know, steady cash flows. You avoid the volatility of the commodity end of the energy business, which as we, we will probably get into more detail on that. That is not where you 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 find steady growing dividends, and so that you know that's um, that's what we invest in. I think what differentiates us is that we are very active in our portfolio management process. We get to know the companies that we invest in. We we place a lot of emphasis on the quality of the management team because those are the folks who are ultimately going to drive the profitability and the and the stability of the firm. By definition, investing in things like utilities means you have to understand regulation. It's a heavily regulated industry. And so we do the same thing. We get to know the regulators. We, we visit with them um, and speak on the phone with them. We attend conferences. We actually have uh, submitted testimony as sort of a, a friend of the court brief, if you will, before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which regulates the pipelines and electric uh, transmission grid here in the U.S. So we feel that that engagement and that uh, getting to know the management teams better informs our portfolio selection process. Today, we manage uh, somewhere between four and a half and five billion dollars U.S., in a, in a number of, of different products, including uh, an actively managed uh, exchange-traded fund. No, superb. Thank you. Thank you for that. Now, I'm going to come back to regulation because, of course, we've kind of seen loads of things going on in the energy space over the past, well, few years, certainly a few months, COP26, and before that, you know, a few years of back Paris Agreement. Before we get there, can we just talk about some of the changes we've already seen in this space, kind of so over your career, and perhaps I, feel free to go back further if you want. Um, we've seen a number of changes if you expand that time horizon. But yeah, what are the changes we've already seen in this in this energy space and, and how has that been brought about, kind of technology and things like that? Sure. Well, maybe start with some of the macroeconomic things that I'm old enough to remember, uh, concepts that have, have not been talked about in a while, such as inflation, high, higher interest rates. Going back to when I was uh, at Public Service of New Mexico in Albuquerque, I bought my first house and got the then unheard of first time home buyer's uh, mortgage interest rate of 9.99%, which wow. sounds, exor- it sounds ex- like usury today, but it, it was cheap back then. The, the equity returns for utilities at that time were probably in the high teens. Today, that has drifted down to you know, 9, 10%. You know, inflation is is a topic that's being discussed today. We went from natural gas being something, you know, energy broadly here in the U.S. certainly, but I think this extends to to much of the the rest of the world. Energy was scarce. Oil scarce. Natural gas. That's that's changed. The shale revolution here in the U.S. uh, really, really turned that around. And uh, if you told me early in my career that the United States would be exporting liquefied natural gas to Europe, um, I, w- I would have laughed. I, th- I think that's I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because y- you're absolutely right. In that time, we've had kind of this fear of peak reserves, or I'm going to get the terminology wrong here, but this this real fear by people that energy is just going to run out and we're, yeah. we're going to be left. And now we have potentially more reserves than we we kind of want to extract. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's fair. The question is, you know, there's obviously a lot of politics associated with that. The other thing that we've seen, of course, is the emergence of uh, renewable energy as a viable and economically competitive source of supply. 
uh, here in the U.S., certainly in, in, in Europe and, and around the world. And so, you know, the combination here in the U.S., the combination of abundant and affordable natural gas and the economics of wind and solar, solar, the cost of solar power has come down 90% in the course of a decade. The cost of wind power down 60-70% in the same time period. And these are now viable sources of, of energy in, in much of the U.S. and indeed many parts of the world. And so we used to source close to 60% of our electricity in the U.S. from coal. That's now down to just a little over 20%. I think it was just under 20% in, in 2020. That's a, that's a big change. The company that I started my career with is exiting coal. It used to be their largest source of electricity, and they're, they're fortunate to be in a very sunny and windy part of the country. And so they are going to, uh, they're, they're going to be sourcing from renewables and, and natural gas and phasing out coal. No, that's quite that's quite an amazing change, really, isn't it? So let's let's bring this around to kind of where this is going now, because as as we've just mentioned before, we've had lots of new regulation, we've had lots of uh, meetings of different parties, COP twenty six, Paris Agreement. What does this actually mean for well the future energy industry? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, the climate change is a very is is a very big topic, has been for a number of years, but it it, it gets a lot of uh, it, there's a lot of focus on it. That was obviously the the central issue at COP twenty six, um, and energy is uh, you know a very big part of that, just in terms of emissions of carbon. We as a firm don't don't take a position on political issues like this, but we do see the role that energy plays and the role that energy can and, in fact, is playing in reducing carbon emissions. I talked about how we've reduced our use of coal. The power sector has driven between 80 and 90 percent of the reduction in carbon emissions in the U.S. since the peak in 2005-2007. It's all come from the power sector, and it's been the substitution of natural gas, wind, and solar for coal. Transportation, you know, there was a lot, there's a lot of discussion about electrifying transportation. We can go into more detail on that, but that is something that also calls on the electrical grid to play a, a very critical role. So I, I think there's two ways you can look at this. One is, well, the ener energy industry has, you know, is a big driver of carbon emissions and has historically been, but it can also be and is indeed, we're, we're seeing it, drive lower carbon emissions. And I think there's a fair amount of misunderstanding about that latter point in the, in the broader public discussion. Okay, so let's, let's bring this to the, the current day. So we've seen, we've seen all these transitions going on. Now, I, I want to just bring something which is very topical of today, and that's kind of this spike in natural gas prices. And what's going on here? I mean, this is kind of the, the key question. Is this just the effect of, let's say, weather, or is this something else going on? I open the floor to you. Yeah. So, I mean, what we're seeing in energy is is very similar to what we're seeing in, in other seg segments of the economy. The labor market's tight. Um, supply chains are, are, are stretched. You, you, you never know from one week to the next which shelf in the supermarket is going to be bare. Um, I think this is largely a function of the rebound from what happened in 2020, which was uh, so many things unprecedented um, happened in, you know, last year. It's almost not last year, but uh, demand has come back. Um, you know, during COVID, I 
did continue to travel, not as much as I had. But I can remember going into LaGuardia Airport in 2020, and there was one other passenger and five TSA security agents that I could see. This is LaGuardia Airport in New York City. I just recently flew back here to Salt Lake City. The aircraft was completely full. The airport is completely full. And the airline industry struggled to add, to bring planes that had been parked in the desert back into service so that they could add seats to meet demand. The same thing happened in energy. We actually saw a negative oil price last year. Yeah. Demand for, uh, for energy dropped precipitously because Nobody was going anywhere. Nobody was flying. Nobody was driving. And so producers had to adjust their output to, to meet that sharply reduced demand. As it came back, it's not as simple as, as throwing a switch. It's just like taking those airplanes out of the desert and putting them back into service. It takes time to bring production back on. So you had already a tight market. Now we come into, and particularly thinking about where you're, where you're sat, we come into perhaps an early and, and cold winter, which drove demand for all forms of energy. It wasn't on, you know, it's not record setting or anything, but it's just, you know, in a tight market, any little movement will cause prices to spike. Just the other day, the French utility announced that they are having to take two of their nuclear stations offline because of some technical issues. That'll take, I'm going to geek speak here for a moment, but that'll take just for this year, 2021, which is almost over, a million megawatt hours, a terawatt hour of electricity off the market. And I haven't looked in the past 15 minutes, but we were trading north of 500 euros per megawatt hour. Multiply that by a million. That's the cost to replace that nuclear energy. So that's the, the, the price is up because you've introduced another variable to the market. Producers here in the U.S., oil and gas producers have always been profligate spenders of capital. And that's why it's always been kind of a boom and bust um, business. And I say this with caution, but it does seem that we're seeing a more tempered response to uh, rising prices here in the U.S. relative to what we would have seen five years ago. Uh, producers are, uh, the, the CEO of one of the major oil companies commented recently that, that they need two signals to, to ramp up their production. One is, uh, is prices, which they're seeing. The other is the willingness of the capital markets to fund that, and they're not getting that signal. So to the extent that the producers are not responding as quickly to prices, that is also contributing to the to the current situation. Do, do you think that kind of, so that capital shift is something here to stay? Because kind of the way I see this is potentially, and you know, tell me, tell me if this is the way you see it from your side of the desk, is that we, we have this massive drive for certainly portfolio managers to green their portfolios, to get rid of anything that's got anything remotely fossil fuels in it, and just go, okay, well, we can, I don't know, we'll, we'll just buy tech. I'm just going to use that as an example. But remove any fossil fuels. And that must have a direct impact on the capital flows into some of these these businesses and actually have potentially a, a kind of a, an impact on CapEx and things like that. I think that has had an impact. But simply divesting something, let's say you decide to sell your your holdings in, in oil companies, someone else is going to buy that. And I think the real question as an investor is, 
where are we going to be sourcing energy? Um, I think one of the one of the topics that you had had um, suggested we touch on was what's the long term outlook for the demand for for oil and natural gas. Certainly, renewables are going to or will continue to grow, but from a very small base. And so, our view is that there will continue to be demand for fossil fuels. It will probably even continue to grow in some parts of the world that don't have the, the, the ability to, to lean as much on renewables as, as we do perhaps here in the U.S. And that demand, and, and if producers don't you know, ramp up production as quickly, you're going to see prices remain at higher levels. But I think this is the, the important thing to think about here is this is transition. I think it will be a very long transition. From our standpoint as investors, we absolutely want to be exposed. We want to be where the puck is going, so to speak. And so we have shifted our, um, our holdings in the direction of, of uh, more, including more renewables, for instance. But it's an extension of, of what our companies themselves have been doing. The U.S. utilities have been investing directly in solar and wind because it makes sense. It's economic. It's competitive. Um, it also aligns very nicely with public policy. But back to your original point, yes, I think that transition has affected uh, capital allocation decisions. Yeah. So go, going forward, if we kind of see that fossil fuels are an, um, remain an important mix or part of that mix, that energy mix, where does this kind of sit with technologies such as carbon capture? I mean, is, is that in your view something really important? Or, or is this kind of just something which is always going to be just too expensive to, to really do? I, I, I think it's, it's certainly emerging. Uh, it's getting a lot. It's being addressed in some pending legislation here in the U.S. Um, I actually listened to a webinar yesterday that was hosted by the University of Wyoming. Wyoming is a, a you know, Western United States, a big coal-producing uh, natural gas and oil-producing state. So they've uh, and very, very th- thinly populated. I think the entire population of the state is is uh, maybe five or six hundred thousand. But they have a lot of geology that they believe is suitable for carbon capture, which obviously you need to have a place to put it, and you need to be pretty comfortable that it's going to stay under the ground. And they addressed a lot of these these technical issues on this. But I think um, carbon capture and storage gives you the ability to address the problem as opposed to prescribing a solution. And I think a lot of the discussion around energy has been so evangelical around, well, we simply have to do away with fossil fuels because they're bad. Well, what's bad about them? Well, the bad part is, okay, it's carbon emissions. Well, what if we had technology that could could address that? Maybe we could continue use those fuels in a more responsible manner. So I, I think you will see carbon capture and storage technology continue to, to, to uh, capture attention. A comment that I heard by the former Secretary of, of Energy of the U.S. was that if we're going to achieve the climate goals that we've set forth, we have to start now and we have to use technology that exists today. We can't be dreaming about this. We, ha- we, have, to, we have to pull every lever that we can. And I think that's a very important point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to come back to kind of the, this this idea of using this technology to to like carbon capture to allow us to keep using fossil fuels because there's something else, isn't there, going on on here, and that is we run the risk of basically penalising a lot of emerging markets 
where you know they 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 can't afford higher costs for for electricity in fact some of them or i'm going to say most of them have higher unit costs than we do and yet yes. and and yet they, they you know the the income they're bringing in per capita is far far lower and we i think we kind of run this risk of prescribing to them again this this kind of idea that all fossil fuels are bad and not allowing them to actually benefit from the the that really dense energy at a very cheap cost yeah. which has allowed us to develop yeah it's sort of environmental imperialism in a way you're absolutely right. I mean, there are places in the world where, where people still cook indoors using animal dung. What if that could be replaced with natural gas? Uh, right there, you've, it's a game changer in terms of the, the health of, of the people living in that, in that dwelling. More broadly, um, if we have the technology and the capability to produce natural gas here in the United States and ship it over you know ship it around the world in the form of lng which is much lower not just carbon intensity but relative to coal natural gas is is much cleaner you don't have mercury you don't have sulfur you all of these other pollutants that come with coal yes it is a fossil fuel yes it does emit carbon but it's about half of the the carbon emissions of a comparably sized coal plant and when you're talking about displacing older coal plants i think the benefit is probably even greater so why would you deny countries the opportunity to do that and prescribe that they must go to technology that might not even be suitable what if what if, what if you don't have the solar resource or the wind resource um, you know, what are you going to do? I absolutely believe that we need to do everything that we can to put less stuff into the atmosphere, but prescribing solutions as opposed to setting goals and creating economic incentives to achieve them are two different things. And I, I think all too often we focus on what you were talking about, prescribing solutions. Hey, Sam, just a follow-up question on that. I love the phraseology economic or environmental imperialism. I totally agree with that. Pivoting from the emerging markets over to the developed markets, can you talk about some of the missteps that Germany perhaps walked through the last 10 or 15 years that's now made them in some ways more reliant on Russian natural gas? And could you talk about the geopolitical uh, thing? Because just I just see it so interesting. We're talking about the the emerging markets, if you flip back over to some of the most developed markets, there's this really interesting geopolitical point of they could be getting gas from America and they're not for different reasons. So maybe just walk through that. Yeah, we, we can talk about that and we can talk about it here in the United States, one that we've, we've written a lot about, which is California. But you're right, Greg, Germany set a policy path of, of embracing renewables and they, they did it early on. It was expensive and it was sort of I guess sort of coincided with, but in some ways maybe was even spurred onward by the political desire to eliminate nuclear, which we can come back to in a couple minutes, uh, from their from their electricity mix. And so they embarked on this um, this journey, and uh, as you pointed out, found out that they still have to rely on fossil fuels and not just natural gas, but even coal. Ironically, some of the coal that was displaced here in the United States was exported and probably found its way over there. And so this is a classic example of what happens when instead of defining an outcome that you want to achieve, you 
to find the solution that's going to get you there. And oftentimes when you do that, the solution doesn't get you there. California, very similar situation. California is a very progressive state, very innovative state here in the U.S., and um, they were the first state to really embrace renewable energy, and they've done very well with it. They, they are the, have the highest penetration of, of renewable energy uh, in, in the U.S. Um, there are, uh, interestingly enough, another state that has a pretty high penetration is Texas, which is one of the last places you would think of. But um, California did this in a manner similar to Germany by providing economic incentives for solar, particularly rooftop solar. And they finally had to address this because coming back to what we were talking about a, a few minutes ago, they were allowing um, homeowners with solar panels on their roof to sell the electricity back to the grid at, at full retail price. Okay, it's one thing to offset your use, but it's another to actually sell a wholesale product at retail. And the effect, of, I mean, this is kind of like brewing a cup of coffee at home calling DoorDash and, and having them deliver it to Starbucks and demand a full refund for a, a, a venti blonde roast, right? But this is, this is what was happening. But the social side of it was that the utility, utility regulation has borrows from, obviously, the profit motive, but it also borrows from the socialist model where costs are spread over a, a collective. And so if someone is not contributing to the upkeep of the grid, which the solar was still reliant on, as these folks found when, when the, the rotating blackouts hit, those costs have to be borne by everyone else on the system. Well, who are those everyone else's? They tend to be people who rent, that you know don't own their rooftop, or maybe they live in an, in an apartment block. They tend to be lower income consumers who live in California in the hotter part of the state where they're more reliant on air conditioning. So there was this big inequity that, that emerged. And it was, it, it was well-intentioned at the start because you wanted to create an incentive for adoption. But I, it, it went too far for too long. And now they're having to address it. And it will be a battle royal because there is a lot there are a lot of vested interests in in you know in keeping this this system intact but um, California has some of the highest electricity prices in the United States and they have also moved very aggressively to drive natural gas and nuclear out of their um, electricity mix and so here's another parallel with with Germany what happened was because they have such tremendous solar production during the day, they actually are sometimes exporting power to neighboring states. Their plan to address the variability of solar was then to import power back from those neighboring states when the sun goes down. Uh, it sounded good on paper, but unfortunately, the other states in, in the western U.S. are doing the same thing. They're shutting down their coal plants. They don't have excess to share with California. And so they wound up in a supply crisis and had to, when, the, when weather conditions were extreme, they were forced to, to go to rotating blackouts to preserve the system. Um, this, is, this is what happens when policy and politics are placed above science and, and the physical reality of running an electrical grid. Um, a similar thing happened in Texas for different reasons. Texas and California are about as politically different as, as, as you can get. But Texas has a, ver a, 
uh, the extreme free market approach that doesn't compensate generators for reliability. So they're not going to make the investments needed to uh, harden their system for extreme cold weather. And they were forced to go to rotating blackouts um, earlier this year when when uh, they had you know very extreme cold weather. It wasn't unprecedented, but for Texas, it was very unusual. You had the same outcome, again, driven by, I would argue, short-sighted policy. So I, I want to just come back to something uh, kind of on the on the same subject of this transition towards more, well, renewables and things. But now I want to move this to the automobile space. Sure. To kind of like the, the EV trend, uh, everything going on there. Now, I pulled up a piece on your site, which I think was just in the Insights page. And by the way, if, if it's a great site and resource to go to. Thank you. Now, in there, there's a there's an article headed something along the lines of uh, increasing EV technology and adoption, but we should still expect oil and gas demand to go up in the future. Could you lay lay the groundwork for kind of uh, the background to that and, and kind of some of the things going on in there? Sure. It's there's a yes, you're right. There's a lot of moving parts, but what it really comes down to are a couple of things. One. Um, EV adoption is taking off, but from a very, very small, uh, a very small base. You know, we mention in in this uh, in this post, you know, that there are you know billions and billions of automobiles on the road. And again, thinking about the th- the the theme we were discussing a few minutes ago around emerging markets, when we trade in a a car. Uh, here in the in the U.S. or or in in the U.K., uh, it doesn't go away. It doesn't typically get scrapped. Some of them do, obviously, if they're uh, at the end of their useful life or have been wrecked or what have you. But in most cases, those go into another market. And you know, the average time that a vehicle is on the road is a lot longer than you might think. It's it's you know fifteen, t- probably twenty years. And it's the same issue. A, a, a country that doesn't have much penetration of the automobile, that's where they're going to start because that's what that's what's affordable. You have the issue of of you know EV charging infrastructure, which is moving along quickly, but again started from you know basically nowhere. And so when we ran the the analysis on this, we really tried to stress test things to where we made some very aggressive assumptions about EV adoption that simply are not possible and we found that it still was not enough to offset continued at least near term growth and demand for for um, fossil fuels as uh, in, in the transport in, in you know fueling cars and trucks and so I, I think you have to you have to think about you know where this is starting from the penetration of the electric vehicle which we think is is going to happen it's a better mousetrap. They're, they're simpler, fewer moving parts. All of this. The obvious technical challenge is is, is remains the battery. But yeah, it's just it, it's a it's a uh, it, it's again you, you have to think in terms of a transition. This is not just like walking through a door. So if we if we just come back to something else we've just been talking about because it's it's kind of just been playing on my mind, and that is about nuclear power. Yes, because here we have some very, very different policy in place between. I'm going to contrast France and the US. So France, it seems as though, from my understanding, they want to increase nuclear. US is like, no, that's old technology. 
Yes, well, certainly France is having some, uh, is facing some challenges with their nuclear uh, fleet right now, as we, we talked about a couple minutes ago. The problem with, with nuclear, as we've always pursued it, is that it's a big, it's a big bet. It's a big machine that costs, you know, billions of dollars or euros to construct and happens over a period of years. The French, I think, distinguished themselves in, with their program by adopting a couple of standardized designs that they then built many times. Uh, the U.S. was very different. We, we had each utility uh, kind of had their, their, their own uh, twist on things, if you will. So we built a, a lot of plants, but very few of them were, were alike. With the same, yeah. Yeah. And so that, you know, that led to cost overruns. That, you know, led to delays and so forth. Um, thinking back to one of the other things that I've seen over the course of my career, I was in high school when Three Mile Island happened, uh, followed by Chernobyl. That changed the, the political dynamic and, you know, certainly contributed to the decisions that Germany made. But I think what France is looking at now is more modular, small-scale uh, nuclear technology which would be uh, each unit would be a fraction of of one of the plants that they that that the legacy plants so to speak and this has a couple of advantages in terms of simplicity so the safety systems are are passive such that you're not relying on pumps you're relying on convection and gravity to 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 cool the 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 the, the core um, but doing it in smaller bites means less capital so that's less risk which should lower the cost of capital by definition. But it also, from a technical standpoint, I think speaks to the transition to more variable wind and solar, but also smaller units of production. We're going to a more distributed grid around the world. And it's not going to lend itself, you know, we have, we have such robust information technology today that we can address things like reliability um, through use of artificial intelligence, sensors, monitoring, and so forth. Back when we were building the nuclear plants, it was, it was reliability through brute force. If you needed 100, you built 115 to have that reserve margin. And so I, I think through, through technology, everything from, from, you know, that I mentioned, sensors, metering, and so forth, the ability to, to manage the demand end, to shave peak load, all of those things um, speak to this distributed model and the smaller modular reactor also fits in there in terms of the ability to, to ramp the output up and down so you don't have this massive chunk of power that has to run all, all the time. So I, I, I think that's where, where the, the, the French are, are, are heading and we're also doing research on that here in the U.S. There's a program through the Idaho National Laboratory um, out here that is, is looking at similar SMR technology. There's been a couple of uh, wealthy individuals, uh, uh, household names, that they have also put their, uh, their capital behind this. So I think it's another interesting uh, technology to watch. Um, Sam, a lot of what you just mentioned, talking about the grid and its need to adapt or change, how much of that can be simply added versus having to tear down the old, right? Good question. No, it is... Yeah, it's it's really well. 
some of both, but it is lar- it, much of it is overlay. You know, putting a smart meter on a on a home enables you to do a lot of things. Thinking of of the loads that exist in a household, you have a refrigerator which needs to run a certain amount. The the refrigeration system needs to run a certain amount of time per day to keep the uh, ice cream frozen. And it doesn't really matter what time of the day that happens as long as the outcome is that the ice cream stays frozen. So if the meter can speak to that refrigerator and say, well, you know, it's not so good that you run right now, but maybe in a half an hour you can switch on. And you multiply that by millions of homes across a a utility service territory, that's a real impact. That's probably avoiding building another peaking power plant if you, if you can apply that technology. It also gives you the ability to identify problems. So here in the U.S., we're seeing a lot more extreme weather. Some of the more forward-looking utilities are, are using not just meters. The meter can tell you the power's out. But then you, you have sensors on your system. You haven't had to tear... The, the pole down or restring the wire, you've just put a sensor out there that's, you know, can ping the dispatch and say, yes, I, you know, I'm working, I'm working, oh, I'm not working. You photograph your system in its normal state and using metadata after an event, artificial intelligence compares, here's what it looks like now, here's what it should look like, and here's where the, here's where the problems are. Many utilities are using drones to, to survey their systems. And then, yes, some, in some cases, yes, things do wear out, and we have better technology for poles. Many storm-prone parts of the U.S. were, were going to reinforce concrete poles instead of wood because they hold up better. You string the wire more tightly, all these things. So it's, it's, a, little, it's a little bit of both. One of the uh, things that, uh, so the last guest I had on, he was a doctor of battery technology. And um, we would, we got onto nuclear. And, and this is just something I just thought I'd quickly share. Was His view was, was quite interesting because it brought in a political element as well to nuclear in the past. And that is that nuclear power stations serve two purposes, both producing energy and producing armaments. And yeah. his, his view was very much that actually in the future, if we just concentrate on the energy, there's an awful lot more mileage in there. Yes, yes. That, I think that speaks to, the, to the, the politically controversial side of nuclear. You know, one of the other ways that France was different was in reprocessing their nuclear waste. Yes, you do get a, a weapons-grade byproduct, and certainly your last guest is more informed on science than, than I am, but that is, you know, that is a consideration. But, um, uh, you know, nuclear waste management has been a topic of discussion here in the U.S. for, for, for many years. But I guess one of the other things that I've seen um, over the course of my career is that the environmental community in many respects has come to embrace nuclear. I, I think it's a, it's a matter of what is the greater risk. Is it putting carbon in the atmosphere or managing a waste disposal issue? You know, California right now is, has one remaining nuclear plant in operation that supplies about 8% of the state's electricity, importantly, around the clock. That plant is, is currently scheduled to close starting in 2024, and this is something else that we've discussed on our website. Um, this, is, this creates a real serious shortfall in an already stressed uh, electricity system and market. 
so from here, where do you th- see things going? I mean, kind of, I, I want to bring this around to, I guess, both sides of the coin, the things that you get most excited about that you see going on, and perhaps the things you worry the most about. Well, I think the uh, as as an investor, we see a great opportunity for a lot of the companies that we own to make investments um, that obviously drive uh, you know their ability to grow earnings and dividends, but also align with these broader environmental and public policy goals. You know, as a regulated utility, you always want to make sure that you're your strategy is aligned with public policy. It's just, uh, it, 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 it's the best way to run your business. And I think this energy transition has created the opportunity for utilities to make investments that actually are not just, uh, you know, financially sensible, but also achieve these, these public policy goals and are beneficial for the, for the environment. The thing that I, I, that worries me the most is the amount of misinformation that's out there. Um, the city of New York just uh, announced a couple of days ago that they're going to ban the use of natural gas in new buildings starting in the, in the next couple of years uh, and uh, require full electrification. That's kind of ironic because the vast majority of New York City's electricity comes from natural gas. Um, okay. <laughs> and so there's, sure, you can use more electricity, but where's that electricity coming from? New York State pushed the closure of uh, the Indian Point nuclear plant about 40 miles north of New York City. That was a big supplier of carbon-free electricity to the city of New York. It also created a, a, a hole, if you will, in the transmission grid that, that serves New York City. If you think about where it's situated, it's the very southern end of the state. So it's what's referred to in technical terms as a load pocket. That hole was filled very quietly by two new natural gas-fired power plants. Nobody ever talked about it. But that is, you know, that is what they did. Is that and just because it's politically unpalatable to talk about it? Just that it wants to, they want to hide it? <laughs> Let me put it this way. I, I follow this industry pretty closely, and I'm sitting in Utah right now for the holidays, but our firm is based in Westport, Connecticut. We sit pretty near the New York state line. And the, the last new natural gas plant that came on is in the Hudson Valley, about 10 miles over the Connecticut state line. I had no idea that this plant was even being built. I sort of stumbled upon it. And I went to the New York Times website and just searched for any stories about this Cricket Valley uh, Energy Center. I couldn't find anything. I found well. crickets. Um, <laughs> and so why it wasn't discussed, who knows. But it was, it was done very quietly, quietly enough that an energy geek like me didn't even know it was happening. That's, yeah, that's quite, quite incredible. Hey, uh, Sam, I just want to thank you so much for your time and, and it's, it's been great chatting with you. I guess one final question is just if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Where should they head to? Absolutely. Our website is eipinvestments, plural, dot com. 
And we have um, our EIP Insights section. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about today can be uh, a deeper dive can be found there, including uh, I just pulled up the uh, the discussion that we had on on the vehicle transition and demand for for gasoline. And it's you know speaking about countries you know in, such as China and India, where there's still a very high high percentage of the fleet remains uh, it will, probably will remain internal combustion engine vehicles. No, Sam, thank you very much indeed. That's been uh, brilliant. Thank you. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you and enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.